Welcome to Spirit School. I'm your mentor, Danielle Serenk, also known as the Squamish Medium. In this podcast, I share honestly all I have learned about the mediumship and spiritual development journey. My intention is to normalize these conversations, to make way for a more confident, clear, and connected wave of lightworkers, serving the world of spirit with an open and joyful soul. Welcome again to Spirit School. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Spirit School. I am so excited to be bringing you an interview with somebody who I have been following for years on Instagram, who I think has probably the best celebrity name I have ever heard in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Christian Bradley West on the Spirit School. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for that. Yeah, we can take my mom for that. It's one of the things she did right. Of course, you're better known on Instagram as the country clairvoyant. You are one of my biggest meme inspirations and meme dealers. After getting to experience a session with you and get to know you better, I just had to share you with the Spirit School audience because I just think you have so much to offer the world. So I'm excited to have you here. How are you doing today? Good. Yeah. Like we said, I'm human. I'm in my body. So today I feel strange, but not in a bad way. You know, I'm like everyone. I got to sort through some things. I'm going to go to the gym later. One of my ways I meditate, you know, it's rainy here. It hasn't been this way in months. So, you know, things are well. And as I like to say, when people ask me that ultimately I'm maintaining, I'm maintaining. Yeah. I know you're really, really into astrology. And even when I had my session with you, which was a clearing expression block, I was blown away by your depth of astrology that you knew too. I know I hear a lot of astrologers saying, look, like, I don't know anyone who's like thriving right now. (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen that more or less in the past like year? Uh, Yeah, I'd say there's a lot going on. There's a lot of fear. I think there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of grief. And grief really is something that we don't uh, pay attention to, especially in the Western world. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. But we, we're we not really talking about it. And really, there's great new research out that grief is like a form of longing, right? So whether we're longing for times gone, whether we're longing for a thing we feel like we missed out on, whether we're longing for a future that is inclusive and loving and kind for all of humanity, whatever. I think people feel like right now they really are lacking something. I can feel that. I went through end-of-life doula studies a couple years ago because I'd never experienced grief myself. And of course, as a medium, I'm working with people grieving all the time. So I took this education as a way to try to educate myself on grief and the science behind it and try to learn about a bit. When I first experienced grief in 2020, there's nothing that can prepare you for it. No books, no vicariously living through somebody's experience. And I had an epiphany the other day that sometimes I could be really hard on myself as a Virgo. I'm yeah, like, you no, know, always I could do better, should have been better. Yeah. And I was able to actually experience what I felt in that moment. It was actually grief. I was, was like, wow, this is exactly <laughs> grief coming up. The shoulding on ourselves. I should be this way. I should have this by now. I think a lot of people are feeling like, oh, well, it should have been this way. And it wasn't, you know, sometimes even with our parents and like, if we didn't get the caregivers we wanted as adults, we're like, I should have gotten that. Oftentimes we'll seek it out in our partners, right? Mm -hmm. Things like that. So fear, shame, and grief. I narrow the quote unquote negative emotions, whatever you want to call it to these three things. Cause I find everything else comes from them, the fear and some form of lack. 
lack, right? Fear is this perceived lack of safety. Shame, perceived lack of value. And grief of this perceived lack of whatever, something that we want or that we think we need. So yeah, I think grief is highly pervasive right now within the collective and something that if we can learn to work with, we can transmute it, obviously, because it's just part of this human experience. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I was so drawn to your clearing expressive block session because I talk for a living. (laughs) (laughs) I teach. And something that came up for me has cleared since our session. We just had our session last week, by the way. I (laughs) I need you on my podcast. And so happened that this worked out perfectly. Ever since I've named it, I don't experience it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, And sometimes we will still experience it, but we can see it for what it is. And make the choice to not allow it to impact us at that point. I think this is a good, uh, you know, mini segue. I think having the vocabulary to be able to express ourselves. Like for me, I was born thinking I was a girl or feeling like I was a girl, not just thinking, but feeling like there was something off between my body and how I felt. And later on in life, I decided I was non-binary and that became such a powerful experience. So I went to things like, I think I'm trans, which I would say, yes, I still had to consciously choose for whatever reason to be in this male body. And I'm happy with it. I don't want to change it. I enjoy it. But I also had to acknowledge this other part of me when I got that vocabulary going, oh, non-binary, like that's a thing. Like, oh my God, I felt more comfortable. Even being able to say, okay, there's something trans about me, which I like because I think of transcendent, right? I think of transmutation. I think of transformation as the root of that word really implies. So I was like, oh, I have to acknowledge this piece. The vocabulary helps us in the acknowledgement of it. And I think one thing that I'm here to do is to provide a vocabulary for people who maybe can't say it or maybe aren't aware of it. You know, I don't know why I like words, but even in my experience, having lack of a better term, the right word, the word that fits the thing to go, oh, that's what that is to describe the emotion, to describe the experience opens up doors in us. Yeah, I agree. And it took me about one hot minute of being in therapy to realize I was really lacking in language on how I felt. (laughs) Well, because we're not taught to look at our emotions. We're not taught to explore. It fascinates me that we are extremely emotive creatures and beings. And yet, and yet we learn to suppress that. We learn to push it away. We learn to don't explore it. The vocabulary comes in the curiosity through therapy, right? Or whatever, through a reading even, through our own reading, through books and research. And when we gain the words of description, we also gain access to expression. Mm. That's really powerful. Absolutely. You know, the way that my mediumship really works is through emotions. Like I'm a yeah. medium and yeah. so spirit likes to communicate through me how they felt about the person in this life. And yeah. that's not always great. That's always rainbows and butterflies either, right? Oh, goodness, so. <laughs> also like the personalities and like the isms and the mannerisms. And so yeah. I understand that part of my responsibility of a light worker is finding that language and is educating mm-hmm. myself on all the varying degrees and spectrums of sadness, of confusion, of love. And there's just there's so much power behind the words that we pick and choose and the work that yeah. we do. So I actually started including in many of my workbooks because I teach a lot about mediumship, like yeah. 50 or more 
emotional descriptions so that yeah. people can start building the vocabulary around it as much as like I felt like I needed to as well. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I mean, one of the classes I teach is your word is your wand. And if we can look at our words, look at the voices in our head, even you and I discussed this, pay attention to the voices. So again, how are we using language? How are we using it to support ourselves or work against ourselves? And it's funny, I get really frustrated in the spiritual community. They're like, just five, just five. <laughs> Just, just, yeah. all you got to do is just vibe. I was like, listen, if just vibing worked, we would be in a utopia now. I was like, and what type of vibes are you harboring that maybe are unconscious that you're trying to suppress in your just vibing or positive vibes only or all those things? Like we cannot weaponize the vibes against the negativity, right? We've got to... From my perspective, use our language. We have the most complex, not just that, not one language, but multiple languages of any other being that we're aware of thus far, right? And that's beyond just micro expressions, beyond movement. Of course, dogs can tell things through movement. I think dolphins, a lot of other animals can too, crows, whatever, you know, recognize movements. And granted, yes, there are creatures like crows and whatever that have a language system between each other, but it's very primitive. So for us, we have something that's remarkably complex that's been developed over who knows how long we've been here. So why not use it? So when people say, oh, you can just vibe or we're moving to a state where we're moving away from language, I'm like, ask um, that. You know? <laughs> I'm like, no, we're moving to a state where we can become more articulate. And here's the thing. Communication is, of course, the key to all successful relationships. Mm. And so if just vibing worked, then we'd be able to just vibe with the person. But we can't. You know, it frustrates me, too. I had a friend that did a survey on his stories about should you tell the person how you feel or should they just get it? And most of the people said they should just get it. Huh. I'm like, no, that's not how this worked. I don't want to read your mind, even though I probably can. Actually, my partners would say that I could, but the point is that's sometimes too much work. Tell me what you need. Tell me what you want. I can read you even in bed with partners. I was like, you got to Yeah, I can read your physical expression. I can read all that stuff, but I want more. I want you to say it. Use your words. When I taught school and I taught autistic kids, one of the things we would say to them all the time is use your words. The ones that were verbal, use your words, express it. Tell me what you want. Tell me why you're frustrated. Tell me what's going on. You didn't use the word trigger, but basically it was it. Why are you triggered? What's going on? And in the most extreme cases, I mean, you're talking to a writer. So I'm going to, of course, say my reasoning behind this and be an advocate for language. But language is such value, even like you said in the mediumship, but it's paired with the emotions. Mm -hmm. So again, my work, like with you in the class, we talk about emotions. Sometimes you can't think your way through things. We've got to go beyond the language sometimes and go deeper into the visceral experience of that emotion before we can find the word for it. We've got to feel it before we can say it. At least that's the way I am. And in, in sessions like you, I, I feel it before I can say it. And I even pause many times because I learned over the years that my vocabulary does not always sync up with my clients. Yeah. So oftentimes in sessions, I will have to pause before I want to say something that's coming through very strongly and say, what word does this person need? How do they need this described to them? 
And sometimes it takes two to three tries. I'll say it one way, they won't get it. I'll say it another way. And they're like, oh, that really resonates. But I said it 10 minutes ago a different way, you know? But the way I said it the next time is how it resonates. So sometimes you have to work through those layers. So I think within ourselves, because we're all intuitive, one of the main points of this is to get in touch with how we feel, why we feel that way. And are we blocked by certain trauma, as you know, uh, insecurity, things like that. And then once we clarify the waters through this process, through the descriptions, through, I have the words. So it's interesting we went in that direction because words are just so vital. But oftentimes too, if they're disconnected from the emotion, they just become a thought. We can't think our way through everything. We can't even communicate our way through everything. Sometimes we have to feel our way through everything. So yesterday I was with a friend and we went and saw Marcel the Shell. I would recommend going to see it. It's adorable. It's beautiful. It's funny and poignant. But he just was crying the whole time. <laughs> and he was like, I don't know if this is the movie. He's like, it's not just the movie. He just had to emote. He just had to emote. And I didn't ask him how he was feeling. Well, I did once and he said everything. And so I just left it. I was like, okay, I'm just going to let you feel. I'm just going to let you feel. Because the words will eventually come. Yeah. And I think us in this generation too, I appreciate you speaking so graciously about all of that because it's so important. It's the hardest thing to teach other intuitives. It's like, yes, there's the gift of connecting and the ability yeah. that you develop to connect, but saying what they are expressing through you through emotion and through thought is like yeah. the trickiest part. Just start talking. And it could take some time to start building your language around this as well, because truthfully, our parents didn't talk about emotional intelligence, right? (laughs) Like, no, put your hands down, get to work. Like capitalism is at work here. Exactly. You need to make the money, take care of the kids and the family. You know, it goes back to the conditioning. I've done everything I was told I was supposed to do. And then, of course, somewhere in life, usually around the midlife crisis, usually maybe around the late 30s, we start to realize that all these things are unfulfilling. Why they're unfulfilling? Because they've all been mind dominated. They've all been, okay. let's forget how you feel about this. You were just supposed to push through. And then we usually have a mess on our hands at that point, right? Because we've built up this thing that needs deconstruction, which requires self-reflection, which requires looking at the emotions, looking at the thoughts and the conditioning that went into the creation of it. And then how are you going to go from there? I mean, even me, somebody who went in a different direction, who didn't get married, who didn't have kids, did all that, still had to look at that in my late 30s. In that period of time, this is when I discovered being non-binary and things like that. And so, again, through my 30s, a lot of layers, being able to articulate layers that I couldn't in my 20s. People who know me know this. I was very intuitive in my 20s. I managed to get around a lot of red flags and not get hit and things like that. I had one really kind of big hit in my mid-20s with a relationship that really took me out for a minute, but very briefly. All of it was very intuitive, how I went about things, my choices, everything. And in my 30s, I had to understand the structure, which goes back to that language. And that's when I started to write. Really, I was already writing. I I have journals filled with things and I had poetry and all that. But in my 30s, I was like, I really want to be a writer now. Like, that's really what's calling. I want to use my words. I want to articulate. And I had to really deconstruct my 20s and understand why I was making those choices. And it was all intuitive, but I didn't understand. And then in my 30s, I made the same mistakes, by the way, 
But that go round, I wasn't as intuitive. I was more intellectual about it. So I had to find the balance between the intuition and intellect in my 30s, which is where I came up with the phrase, you can't think your way through everything. Yeah. You really can't. And I learned that because I would try and intellectualize how I felt. And again, this friend yesterday, he's a Gemini moon, Venus, and his moon's conjunct his ascendant, by the way, for those that know astrology. Gemini is the thinker, by the way, okay? Gemini rules the thoughts and communication. And so he'd spend his whole life intellectualizing his emotions, which, by the way, my Gemini moon's out there. You might do. Aquarius <laughs> moon as well. Any air moon, really. Libra's not as bad as the other two. But my point being is that it's even in his chart and he can't do it anymore. He can't. So he's 39. Like, again, in the 30s, I can't intellectualize my emotions. I have to feel them first. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'm wondering, too, I really wanted to go back a little bit with you because there's two Please. things that really go back. stuck out for me on your website. So there's two areas I want to go, and I'm going to let you choose which one you want to go to. And I'm hearing a lot of, like, this growing into your expression and then just wanting to highlight the fact that you are an incredibly acclaimed artist. No. And when I'm, <laughs> art, I'm like, okay, this guy does painting he does sculptures he creates textiles like just mind-blowing art that you do and i'm wondering if that had a piece in your finding your expression as well yeah. that would be very emotional in your photography mm. like i'm shivers right now just thinking about some of the pictures that i saw and so like yeah. how is that important and then i also want to go back to you have over 20 years experience in this field so you must have yeah. <laughs> going yeah. into your craft as well. So those are two things yeah. that we really wanted to pick your brain about too. Well, we'll, we'll start with the second one and it'll lead us into the art. So yes, the art helped me a lot. Again, intuition, very visual. It fascinates me in my early 20s doing the, my photography. People saw what I was doing before I saw it. So I had a lot of things in people's mouths, like pine cones and <laughs> ribbons. Like I wanted to shove shit in people's mouths. And and like, birds. <laughs> birds, yeah, which I did not ask him to do. It's called I Know How to Revive Birds because that's what he said. He was one of my students and we found a dead bird and, I, you know, I became friends with him. They lived down the street from me. And he said, I know how to revive birds. So he's literally bringing breath into it, which the bird to me always kind of felt like a fall from grace or fall from innocence or something like that. And so reviving the bird brings something back to life. So the word grace is something I'm starting to talk a lot more about. My definition of it, which I define for those that want to know, infinite second chances. So we get to revive the bird whenever we want. We get to reconnect. We get to do all those. So someone said about my art, it's like you're trying to say something, but you're struggling because all your pictures, even though I was saying it in a very poetic fashion, it was about struggling with communication. And it was true. It was true. I really struggled with communicating who I was and what I wanted because it was through trauma. I mean, I was slapped a lot when I would talk and I was too big, too much, always. Even with the men I've dated, you're too much. I've heard that a lot, which I say F you to at this point. I was like, no, I'm not too much. I'm me, right? Like I've had to work through that. But going back, exploring all the pieces. So according to like my mom and other people, I just had this innate ability for art, but also an intuition about things. I just always knew things. Sometimes to the point of where I would get slapped because I didn't know I wasn't supposed to talk about certain things. You know, we keep that under the rug. Like don't expose that, things like that. So I'm really big about being honest as much as possible. So as a kid though, that gets you in trouble because you, you don't have a filter. So the intuition was always there. And then I was blessed with one of my mom's best friends who worked in a metaphysical shop. In my late teens, really, I started to come into this because I got sick. And so I connected with like herbs and things like that through a lot of gut stuff. 
that led me to shops that had psychics too and essential oils. So I started looking into all that and studying all of that stuff. So very young, I knew how to use essential oils. I mean, when I was 16, I was basically probably an aromatherapist at that point. I knew all the oils. And this was back before the multi-level marketing stuff. I mean, this was around 1995, you know, 95, 96. That kind of, again, opened doors. So I had these things. And before then, I was drawn to spirituality, but I chose Christianity at the time because I deeply wanted this connection with something that I felt was really more immersive and not even connection, just being a part of, you know, what you could call connected because we live in the perceived duality. But, you know, I really felt drawn to that. That started to fall apart when being gay showed up and of course, non-binary going like, oh, well, I'm considered an abomination. I was like, that doesn't feel right. I mean, hell never felt right to me. Every time they talked about it, I was like, there's no hell. I was like, we live in hell. Like we create hell. Like I knew that at a very young age. And then as I started to read and expand and learn uh, about spirituality or different facets of it and learn cards and I was was always connected to fairies, you know, nature, spirit, that thing was always big for me. And luckily I had a couple people that saw it. Not my parents, people outside the family, you know, that, that really supported me in that. My mom saw it. I think she did what she could do. That makes sense. She struggled with her own traumas and own things as many of our parents do. I think that that led to the art too. The art really came because I could I wasn't allowed to sing. My music teacher saw some raw talent, but that never happened. I also had visual talent. So in composition and whatever, I remember my fourth grade art teacher really pointing out what I could do. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was just throwing shit on paper, which says to me, we don't come here as blank slates. We come here, whether genetics, past lives, all that stuff. And if you've ever taught young kids or had children, you know, they just have a personality from out the gate. You know, I mean, they just do and we can cultivate it or not. So the intuition thing started to bellow. By the time I was 18, I got my first deck, which was Brian Froud's Fairy Oracle. For those who know Brian Froud, he did the Dark Crystal and Labyrinth art uh, with Jim Henson. But he was known like for fairies. He connects with fairies, all those things. So I was obsessed with his art. Again, a friend gave me his book when I was 14. It came out in 78, the year I was born. And so it was like an interesting little thing that that came out at the same time I did. I popped out on the scene. And so it was just a thing. And that book also had Alan Lee in it, who did what we sell in Lord of the Rings. Alan Lee did a lot of work for that. He had illustrated The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings books and things. They collaborated on that. So two of my really artists that just resonated with me. And so I followed the art because I could go into my room and make art and and I was quiet and people liked it. They rather see me, not hear me. So I threw that out there. So gave up on the singing, gave up on the music, gave up on that and decided to go in that direction. I became obsessed with photography. And I noticed that when I did photography, I was present. I ended up reading Eckhart Tolle. That book came out in 97 and I was really ramping up on my photography. And I was like, oh, I'm doing what he says when I make art. All the things he talks about, I was like, there's no pain body here. There's no second guessing. There's no question. There's no thoughts getting in the way of me making what I want. I could just move into it. And that's what I do in sessions. I have to move into that space, my intuition. I have to drop all the judgments. I was struggling with one client a while back who's a very consistent client. So for those that don't know, if you read someone more consistently, sometimes people say it gets harder. I haven't found that to be the case because I didn't want that to be the case when I was younger. I was like, I don't want to be that person. So, but what I learned I had to do is drop all judgment. 
right? Drop all, uh, any, anything that could block the information from coming through. And that's what I do with my creativity. I do it in my writing now too. So it taught me how to do that, how to completely step outside of the little me, so to speak, the ego me, the whatever, and go into a space of just pure expression mm. and allow whatever to come through to come through. And then when I started designing, I did a lot of research trending, but I was good at that too, intuition. I just could know things. My dad told me when I was younger, if I wanted something, a color or a style, which he never knew where I figured out the style, he shopped at Brooks Brothers or whatever. He'd be like, you know, you want whatever comes into style about two years ahead of time. Mm. So he pointed that out. I remember we were at the dinner table one day and he said that to me because my parents were always like, you want that? It's like corduroy. I want it like a leather jacket or whatever. Like I wanted this thing. And they'd be like, where is this coming from? And I was like, I don't know. I just want this thing. <laughs> I'm at the other end. I'm usually two years behind trends. <laughs> and that's okay. When it comes to technology, I'm not an early adopter. I want the bugs worked out. I was not an iPhone early adopter, but you know, I came around a couple of years later, obviously, but I like to be aware of those things. So yeah, they, they worked in tandem. And I'll tell you, through the art career, yeah, I looked at my photography, I looked at drawing, and what I ended up doing was drawing from found photos for the zona. So I was still influenced by the photography aspect of it. I wanted to connect with that. I don't know, photography, for those that have done it, is just magic. I mean, when you've worked in a dark room, not the digital age. I mean, there's something about the antique processes, which I worked in, like the tintypes and ambrotypes and emulsions and things like that. I like to touch things. I'm an earth sign. I like to feel things. I still love to read the books. I can't read a book on a pad. I can't do it. Even like reading long articles. As much as I want to, I don't always get to it because even though I'm holding the phone, there's something about wanting to hold the thing. So sometimes I'll print them out. When it came to my art, even though I've done graphics work and graphic design, you know, it falls flat sometimes. So even in the textiles, I designed it in the computer, but I got something physical from it, which I loved, which felt very similar to the photography. It was kind of in the ether. It was kind of on this film. And then I would take this thing and through light, the light would shine down and it would create this image on this piece of paper that then I could hold or this, this piece of aluminum or, or whatever. Putting on the aluminum, things like that, it became sculptural even. So the carpet was the same. I would draw out the textile and then we'd pick out the yarns and the colors and then it get tufted. And then you'd have this very physical thing. And sometimes I miss it. I mean, I really do. And even in my work, in my process, I give people very physical things to do in sessions. It's different for everyone. But I want to ground it in a practice. The art was not something I just learned. I was self-taught. I didn't go to school for it, but I had to learn it. And even my degree, which is in science, because I'm a scientist too, I had to learn to be in my body. And my degree for those now is extra science. There's a lot of physiology. Also, there was a lot of psychology that went into it that I use now because we talked a lot about health promotions. And at the time, we called it behavior modification. So a lot of those things I work with my clients, okay, what behaviors are essentially in preventing you from getting where you want to go? And you experience this firsthand, you know? And so it's funny how it just all melded together. Because of my art, I could design a beautiful website. Because of my words, I could make memes and pick the pictures and like find the things because the memes to me are kind of like poetry. They can say a big thing in a very small space. So my recommendation for people that are listening, I say all this because explore all your pieces. And that's really what I did. 
I didn't leave a stone unturned. I was like, okay, I want to understand this. I want to look at this. I want to read about this. I did not allow anything or anyone to stand in the way of me exploring internally and externally, even within myself, going back to the emotions. When I feel the fear, I'm like, what is this about? Why am I resisting? Why am I doing this? And so, yeah, it's all this big soup of Christian Bradley West. (laughs) I had to look at each ingredient, you know? And then years ago, when I first started doing the intuitive work professionally, which has helped me a lot because now I have a pool of people to kind of a cross-section, the scientist part of me, to look at and see, well, how are these humans humaning? What are the dysfunctions? What are they running up against? I get more relationship sessions than any other one. Astrology is the next one. And then the clear expressive blocks. It's interesting to me because it's like, oh, these humans are functioning in this capacity. This is what they're struggling with. And I was like, oh, it's in me too. So a lot of times, to your point, I use a lot of examples from my life, which I was really self-conscious about in the beginning, but it's even come out in my writing. I realized, show your work. That's my philosophy, show your work. And when I was in art, by the way, I got my mentors at the time, all of them told me to not show my work. Mm. Don't be messy. Don't let people see the messy process. None of that. And again, another thing I say, F that too, because my thought is, no, I started noticing the millennials, especially with the advent of Instagram, wanted to see the work. They wanted to see how the artist created. They wanted to see the process. And then the spiritual community is big too, because we make the assumption that Buddha and Christ and all these other spiritual teachers just one day woke up and boom, they were enlightened, (laughs) which is just total BS. They were absolutely not. They suffered. Buddha left his comfort of his home and went and became, you know, an ascetic. Christ was his own ascetic, you know, went into the desert. They fasted. They did these things. They hallucinated. They went through all the things. And then eventually something clicked. Yeah. They went through a process. The dark years of Christ in his 20s, we don't know where he was. I think he was studying Buddhism personally because he sounds like a Zen Buddhist. The teachers came and they were like the Dalai Lama or even the next Buddha was born from my perspective. So the people showed up to go, hey, this is where Buddha's going to be now. We're going to go there. And this is where the next Buddha is because I think Christ is just another Buddha. They were in meat suits like we were. They struggled with illness and disease and You know, even Christ went into the Garden of Gethsemane and said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to have to go through this process. Don't make me go through this. But something was calling him to die. He, for whatever reason, had to go through the stuff because he could have escaped that night and he didn't, you know. And so he knew what his path was and his destiny and where it was leading him. They all struggled. So the humanness of our experience gets bypassed in the spiritual community. And I'm here to change that. (laughs) And I think that's the passion we both share. And I think that's something that came out in the reading. Like, I've been really obsessed with the past couple years after I got on TikTok and started hearing different people's perspectives on how different world events impact different walks of life and people who have lived experiences. And so I decided to sit and listen for two years and just listen to all these different perspectives. And it took me down a road to become trauma-informed. And so I know that we share that passion, like social justice and like this trauma-informed lens of showing up and honoring people's humanity, even in the airy-fairy world of the spiritual space. Do you have anything that you want to speak to that as well? And then I want to go to memes after for a minute, but I want to know your passion with this, like honoring people's humanity, even in the spiritual space and all that fun stuff. And I also just want to say, I agree with you. I think that people, the way that I teach is through my experience 
experiences. And I call yeah. myself an experiential teacher. I find for adults, they learn best that way. Yeah. Well, I think they want to know they're not alone. I think everyone wants to know they're not alone. I think the validation comes as, you know, even a session I had today, I was like, hey, I understand where you are. I see it. I connect with it. I've been here. I've made similar choices because my experience has been very broad. <laughs> I think on purpose, I think to answer your question, the humanness of it is very important. In my early 20s, the song I Hope You Dance came out. And, you know, it's, it's very cliche, very whatever, but it's probably one of my favorite songs. And there's a darkness to it, though. If you listen to the music as well, you got to make your choice. So I think at that point, I was like, I want to dance. I want to dance. I want to experience. I don't want to die going on my deathbed being like, I didn't get to do that. So it's involved a lot of risk. But in process, it has exposed my humanness. And the fact that we come here to be here to experience our emotions, to experience all the things. Now, do we get a choice in it? Are there a lot of systems and structures in place that are suppressive of our expression? Uh, yes. So what we really came here to do is express ourselves. But for some reason, it gets cloaked with the conditioning initially, right? As the way I'd say it is this, is we're given all these hand-me-down clothes. We have to put on the clothes because that's what we're told to do. And then later on in life or throughout life, we start to shed those clothing, start to shed those beliefs, start to shed those things, which is where most of us who've had the awakening or keep having awakenings, most of us do. I think everyone does. It never stops as long as we're in this meat suit. Part of the human experience is shedding the skin, shedding those layers, shedding the belief systems, shedding the things, and then going, well, this is who I really am. And I think all the enlightened teachers, all those people, the ones that really exhibit that, there's no pretension. There's no layer of fear, so to speak, that comes from that conditioning. Because let's face it, when we're born, we have an amygdala. It's the first thing. The prefrontal cortex isn't. We rely on our parents for perspective as children because we don't have that perspective. But as we age, we acquire it. So part of the experience is to come to experience the fear initially, to come to experience the lack of safety. The issue is most parents aren't really good at creating the safe environment because we really don't live in safe environments. So one of the lines from Marcel is that he's looking at his social media, the little shell, because a filmmaker's filming him and he goes, peace and love. The girl signed her little note. He's like, of course, peace and love. He's like, what? Am I going to sign it? War? Yes, I come with war. And then, man, it just tickled me. And his little sarcasm. And I was like, that's exactly how I feel about it. Like, no, we don't want war, but why do we keep doing it? So violence is definitely part of this experience here. So if we can recognize that within ourselves, then we can stop it. So recognizing the very human, we might even say the animal part, is the part that wants to survive. Part of the spiritual journey is really recognizing that and going, oh, I'm not going to let that impact my choices. I'm not going to let that mask my consciousness. Because even though I'm afraid and maybe I can't eat or I'm hungry, whatever, maybe there's something else. For those of us that, especially if we have privilege in some capacity, maybe we can support people that are struggling with some form of physical lack, you know? So recognizing our fear, our shame, our grief, recognizing those pieces that some people call the shadow or whatever. I don't necessarily like to call it that. I don't like higher self or any of that. I just prefer to look at people as integrated, <laughs> even if they don't think they are. Now, trauma does fracture us in some capacity. And again, part of our journey is looking at all the pieces. So the human part of us is not denying any peace. 
that's really love. Love is total inclusion of everything within ourselves where we don't judge and push away anything. We just go toward that thing that's scary, that's wounded, that's whatever, and we embrace it. So to me, really, a spiritual journey is a journey of consciousness. It doesn't have to get woo, although the woo can be a part of it. The woo continues to be a part of, I don't know how I pick up on things with other humans. I don't know how the magic happens. I don't know how, but it happens and I'm here for it. But my point is this, is that if we don't embrace our humanness, we can't get anywhere. And I'll tell you this, people give Eckhart Tolle a lot of flack because I don't think they really read his work. I don't think they understand it. And that's not bypassing anyone. I think it's true. I think I see a lot of snippets on Instagram where people are criticizing him. And I'm like, did you read the other books? Did you, have you listened to it talking? I was like, yeah. Did you contextualize that within the whole? Just curious. But he says that he talks about the pain body, which is basically trauma. He talks about that. He was doing this, you know, years ago. But what I want to say is he talks about going into the body. When I first heard him and I was reading him and I was, you know, working out and I was in the gym and really was my meditation, which I mentioned earlier. So we're coming full circle. He said to me through his work, go into the body. Don't deny the body. The ascetics denied it. People say, oh, sex is bad. All these pieces of the body, your desire for food, all the seven deadly sins. Now, the seven deadly sins are true. Like, here's the deal. If we overextend anything, like that's why the Buddhism is the middle way. That's why the Stoics, the middle way, right? We acknowledge the human part of ourselves without letting those impulses motivate or override our ability to be aware. I had an ex that would say, well, I don't think humans are monogamous. So we're animals, like all that stuff. And I was like, you know what? If I could be a hoe, I probably would be. I'd probably be out there with anyone and everyone because some part of me, if you follow me, you know, I'm very sex positive. And so I'm all about that. Like go do it. If you want to do it, go do it. Be conscious of it, though. Be aware. Be safe about it. All of those things. But also, my point is, is the fact that I default to monogamy because that's maybe because I'm lazy. I don't know. But I like the deep, intimate connection that I get within that space. But I consciously choose that. I consciously go there because I know that I'm whole in and of myself and I don't necessarily need this person to fulfill me, but I can choose a person that I'm very compatible with that's very healthy, that's worked through their dysfunction and choose to be with that person and be very satisfied with it. There's still an impulse in me to go hoe around, but it's not safe right now. It doesn't work. It's something I have to watch. I think a lot of people do. So we all have the impulses. We all have the things. And so it comes to me like my body is like, let's go make babies. My body just says, let's go make babies. Like, let's go eat. Let's go move. So I'm like, oh, my body wants to make babies today, yeah. you know, but am I going to go and try and make a bunch of it? No. You know, I mean, I go, oh, okay, night, thanks for showing up. I love it. Maybe I'll make love with my partner, whatever. But, you know, things like that. So I think we want to watch all those things, but also not deny it. None of it's bad. I point that because that seems to be the thing that a lot of people like, we have the impulse seat, we have the impulse for all these things. But when it comes to sex, like, oh, that's the one impulse. Nope, not allowed to have that one. You got to pee, but you can't want to orgasm. That's bad. Of course, we know if we don't pee and we don't go to the bathroom, we're going to get sick, right? It's going to disrupt the balance in our system. So our body wants all the things. So yeah, as we live in passion about, don't necessarily love that word, but I'll say I am about being purposeful mm -hmm. in all ways. Be 
on purpose. You are here on purpose. We all are here on purpose, which is to say we are each significant. And so I say, live your life accordingly. So in that, another way to say it is we're all artists. We're all making choices. We will make as many choices in a day as breaths we take. Mm. And we have an opportunity every day to pay attention to those choices. And where is it coming from? Is it coming from survival? Is it coming from fear? Is it coming from lack? And if it is, that's fine. But then make it a choice. I'm going to use this to be manure for your wine flowers in. I'm going to transform. I'm going to do all those things. So being human is what we're here to do. So let's do it really well without the violence. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. That. No, I to podcast to you because, you know, the last area I really want to go as part of this interview, which is where it led me to you and why I really wanted to interview is because I think if yeah. someone were to like just look at your Instagram, they wouldn't get like the depth of you. <laughs> yeah. And I really wanted people because I know a lot of my audience follows you because I have yeah. spiritual me around Monday and I've yeah. been nagging your memes for years now yeah. and resharing them because for me the memes it shows another side of me because I could yeah. be quite and dramatic and it's like <laughs> same for me, it, <laughs> for me it shows like the lighter side of me my weird sense of humor with you why memes what is with them so like I, like I said earlier I think they're poetry I have a poet in me I've always written poetry always loved it I remember sixth grade I met a poet and she came to speak to our sixth grade class and I was just obsessed. I was like, I just love this. There was something again, the words saying things in a small space that resonate in a big way, I, I think is really important. And I was inspired to do it years ago. You know, it, Instagram is mean land. When I researched a lot about building a social media platform or whatever, one of the options is meme account. So for those who don't know, if you look at it, if you've done the research, then, you know, it's celebrity. There are artists on Instagram. So you can narrow it down to these categories. And there are the infographic people, right? And I have the occasional infographic. I used to do that in a funny way. What I discovered for me, I was like, I just felt inspired. I was like, I think memes are the direction to go. I had met another friend on Instagram. She had built a really strong following through the spiritual memes. And I realized they took just your basic memes and sometimes remixed them in a spiritual fashion. I was like, well, I can do that all day. I love remixing things. I'm really good at remixing. There's a great book out there that's called Steal Like an Artist, you know? And, and, <laughs> and, and now what I like what he says, he says, basically what I said, you look at all your pieces, right? Because in the beginning, we learn from the masters. So you learn about how other people are doing and eventually your signature comes through, your voice comes through. And so, you know, I think it took me a while to find my voice. I think I'm as close to it as I'll ever be at the moment with the memes. Uh, I just had someone who I met recently who loves sending memes and he sent me a meme and I was like, that's mine. They took the watermark off. He laughed. He said, you know what? Somehow I knew that. And then, of course, he sent me another one. He's like, is this yours? It was the rise like a multidimensional dumpster fire phoenix or whatever. I was like, that's my words. I was like, oh, my God. So it's funny to see the impact of what I decided to do. Even I started talking about Saturn being into BDSM and astrology and call them Saturn daddy. And everyone uses that term now. No one was using that term in the beginning. So the memes are a way to really get information out there, I think, as much as anything. The downside is with anything is their sound bites, to your point. Now, the editor that I just worked with, I was really grateful for because he seemed to see me. 
he seemed to be able to recognize me and my ability to use language and things. I was delighted. I was like, you see me like, oh my God, like that's delightful. What I was going to say to your point, I think the people that see me, see me, you know, the ones that stick around, stick around, they get it. The ones that don't, that's okay. We're not going to be for everyone. And sometimes I like everything from the ridiculous to the sublime or the sacred and profane. And I think memes can walk that line in a lot of ways. I got a great one last night that I was like, oh, falling to sleep. <laughs> like I got to make it. And again, there's a lot of remixes, but I love like one of my favorite meme trims because I love wizards and all things was the orb pondering my orb. And I love that everyone, including myself, had to create their own pondering orb meme or even the little miss memes, even though people got tired of it. I was like, I'm going to make my own. I'm going to use standard meme format for Little Miss, you know, and like take shit posts and put them in the Little Miss, Little Miss, and then it would have that long, you know, shit post quote on the whatever image. Again, remix, I wanted to do that. So I think it's also an opportunity to be creative and allow that to present. And then I started doing carousels year before last. And, you know, I'm a curator as well. I've curated shows, exhibits, things like that. So I was like, oh, I'll curate memes too. Although that, by the way, I mean, that has made posting three hours a day. I haven't been able to post recently because a lot of other things have been going on. People visiting, book stuff. It's been really hard to find the bandwidth for it because I will spend three hours a day mining memes for y'all. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's so much I just want to respond to this because I'm working on a podcast right now called Free Spiritual Labor. And you were like... <laughs> You're up there with one of the three content creators. If you knew what it takes to come up with like fresh, original. I want to be fresh. Yeah. Like not to toot my own horn, but I think we all should celebrate ourselves some degree. It fascinates me how much of my stuff gets stolen. I mean, and not just taking my watermark off, but my vocabulary. Yeah. I mean, again, going back to how I express what I say, how I do things. Now we're all breathing the same air to some degree, so I'm not going to take all the credit for it. The high tide raises all boats, so I'm happy to be part of the tide and one of the boats too. But still, it's been interesting to watch all of it. And I have friends, friends that say, hear your quotes. People will literally take quotes out of my captions and then go and do things. And, And it's frustrating too. In the beginning, it was really frustrating when I was growing because again, the high tide raises all boats. I had many things go viral. And I said, why aren't you supporting me? I was really confused. I was like, why are you putting your watermark on my creation? And people are like, oh, it's just a meme. But I'm like, yeah, but I'm also make a living doing this. Like you could support my creativity. Even my quotes that people say, I'm like, you could say, hey, that's attributed to Christian Bradley West. You know, I'm reading a book now that I'm not in love with, but it's, it came out in 2013. Um, Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I think we talked about it. I won't say it because she's a good writer and there's nothing wrong with it. But it's got a lot of spiritual mumbo jumbo in it. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is all over Instagram. It's like people just took her quotes in her work and have been making memes with them since. You know, I think the work is a little bypassy, which is why I don't like it. A lot of law of attraction and things like that. And now I'm remembering we discussed it already. But to people out there, like it fascinates me. I'm like, oh, my God, this is where this came from. Yeah. And there were over 2 million copies sold. So, you know, it was very pervasive in the consciousness of the community. She didn't say anything new, by the way. I mean, the secret, there's a lot of little secret things in it too from that book. 
My point is this, is that steal like an artist is fine. But my thought is, if you're stealing just for stealing and you're not making it own, that's an issue. So I do my best to try and make things my own through my own filter, my own voice, my own vision. And, and I think a lot of people out there on social media just don't have that capacity. It's because yeah. I think you said the free spiritual labor. It's because it's hard to do that. It takes time because we live in a process-oriented world, you know? Reflection, it takes deep reflection. That's part of the process. Absolutely. And the intuition. I'm like, what am I going to post? I mean, the post I did today, right before our session, I had for days because I couldn't get to it yet. Even last night, I wanted to write the caption. I was like, I don't know what to write. I was like, I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'll know. So I'll just wait. I was like, I'll just sleep on it and I'll do it before I see Danielle. To your point, it's frustrating, but the bigger I get, the easier it gets. And I look at these artist accounts that also make great quotes, too, that are writers, too, that are, you know, all the things like me. You know, their stuff gets taken all the time. And then they even gets reproduced, like people in China do it. I have a good friend, well, Shannon from Gomez from Rebel Deck. I mean, her stuff gets taken, stolen all the time. Yeah. She really was the first badass, cheeky, cussing kind of deck out there. And now there are a ton of people doing it. Yeah. You know, manufacturers in China are reproducing her thing and selling it on Amazon. Yeah. I have a lot of artist friends that that's happening too. Like their designs for their like greeting cards and now on t-shirts, like drugs. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. I mean, when we talk about capitalism, people think, oh, well, free market. And I'm like, Okay, fine. It, we can narrow it down to that. Yes, a thousand different voices. It's a good thing. That part of it's absolutely good. But we're also in the dark side of it, which is I'm going to steal everything from you just to make a book. Yeah. And the memes fall in line with that because there's a lot of young people that struggle with, do I put watermark on my memes? I want them to. I say, yes, put your damn watermark on it because guess what I can do then? If I don't know what comes from you and I see it on another account and there's no watermark, I know at this point, the chances are it's not because the, someone removed it. It's because you didn't ever did it. And so I, I get frustrated with that. But, uh, you know, as we talked recently, there's a big account out there who literally stole one of my quotes and said it as their own. And that was really frustrating because I'm like, why didn't you just repost me? You're a writer too. And you have over 200,000 and 238,000 followers. I was like, you could have supported me in my work. You could have supported, you know, me as a writer. You could have supported me as I've reposted them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what was their meme, by the way, because, again, they did not put a watermark on it at the time. But I tagged them and I, I think I put it in my stories and, you know, all that. If I don't know and someone messaged me, I will do it. But if there's no watermark, I can't do anything about it. I try and not post things without watermarks. But now it's gotten hard because you don't know if somebody did or didn't put the watermark on it, you know. And I don't think he did. I think in the beginning he wasn't. So I thought it was funny. He came after me for not tagging him, but then he completely stole from my quote. And like we talked about, the more creative people I find, and this is nothing against anyone or I'm trying not to be biased, but those of us that grew up, if you're BIPOC or you're queer uh, or any of that, you grew up in the margins and it gives you a different perspective. And you're forced to be more creative because it's the way that you can show up in the world. Even though I present at this point as a cisgender white male, I haven't always. I was very feminine. I was called names every day of my life as a kid, every day, awful names, very nasty humans in life. But it forced me to step outside the norm because I already existed out of it. But it forced me to consciously go, okay, I got to look at the world through a different lens. Yeah. And the suffering brought that on. 
And I'm not saying everyone can do that, but suffering definitely helps in creativity. Like the funny tweet that says, how do you get so funny? Thanks, it's trauma. You know, (laughs) the privilege does allow for certain things. So I, again, I exist in an intersectional space. Existing there and choosing to be there provides me access to a creative expression that's outside the norm. At least I try and for it to be. I'm comfortable here now. I used to be really uncomfortable in the intersectional space. Again, that non-binary space doesn't just apply to my gender. I'm a non-binary across the board in a lot of ways, you know? I'm not just one thing, but I find that there are a lot of people out there. A lot of the people that are stealing are privileged and just are like, okay, I'm just going to take this and then not be accountable for it. And so that goes back to your free spiritual labor, because a lot of us in the space that are really wanting to push ahead come from an out of the box background. Yeah, I agree. And it makes you wonder before the online space, how prevalent that was in real life. Oh, I think absolutely. It has been. Absolutely. Humans have not moved off the mark. Humans are just as violent as they were 500 years ago. (laughs) And privilege, colonialism, I'm going to steal this from you, whether it's your land or your culture. My ancestry is Scottish. And, you know, my family came here to the Highland Clearances. Well, what happened in the 18th century? The Highland Clearances took place in the 17th century. So all my people were cleared off their lands and then they went to Ireland or came to the States. There was this resurgence in the 1800s, people don't know this, of Scottish culture in Britain. And that's where the kilts we see today come from, by the way, because two brothers decided that this is what the kilts look like. So they created this whole lore, so to speak, around the Scottish heritage that wasn't really true. But for about 30 years, it was trendy because, of course, the trends lasted longer then because they weren't as pervasive as they are now. The connectivity wasn't there like it is through social media. So a meme trend back then would probably last 30 years (laughs) versus 30 minutes or 30 days for us. Not even that long. So being Scottish, basically doing all the things that were Scottish became really big in Britain at one point in time in the 1800s. And they stole all the customs and the heritage and all the things from that after clearing them off their lands. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) well, then they rock and kill. Does sound familiar to the people, (laughs) humans. Well, of course, it was happening with the Native Americans at that time, too. It's still happening. It's still happening. People are still going to take and not be accountable for it. And it's happening in this space. It's happening on a micro level right now, but it's still happening. Hey, you have something I want. I'm going to manipulate it, market it, not even manipulate it potentially, but I'm going to appropriate it. I'm going to take it. I'm going to use it. So when people get upset with me about, oh, it's just a meme. No, it's not just a meme. It's the behavior behind the taking of it, behind the removal of the watermark, behind the fact that this person did not think enough of me to tag me when they posted it. Yeah. There's like Um, some malintent almost. I think so. I I think so. I mean, I can't tell you how many people have removed my watermark and put somebody else's. No, it sounds petty. But at the same point in time, I'm like, we're all in the tide. We're all the boats. We are the tide. 
But it's it's not even about being petty. It's the fact that this is the way history has always been. Well, that's my point. Privilege. Exactly. And so it's a microaggression back to violence about taking something from someone. And we don't consider it violent, but I do. And I talk about it in my work all the time. It's violence to steal from other people. And when they say, hey, that hurt me, to look at them and go, oh, well, I'm really sorry. And this happened to me with that quote, by the way. Oh, I'm really sorry, but can I just keep it anyway? Mm -hmm. Can I just keep doing it? Can I just not acknowledge your influence? Can I just not support you? I want to be the one that spearheads this. And we see it all the time. We even see it in the Kardashians. They got into crystals and different things. And, you know, all of a sudden that's changed things too. Sadly, though, a lot of it becomes superficial in the Mm. appropriation because it forgets where it comes from. Listen, I'm not above this. I've accidentally made some things that people have come after me for. And now most of these people don't know me or where I come from or my heritage, so they don't question it. They're just like, oh, you're a white guy. But setting all of that aside of my own experience, I've looked at it and said, you know what? I'm just going to let it go. But the internet's forever. So people keep tagging me in things that I deleted years ago. You know, I'm willing to look at things. I'm willing to go, is this appropriation? Did I take this? Is this an issue? And let's have a discussion about it. You know, there have been many hateful people, which frustrates me because why be hateful? You know, but again, it's the people's own trauma, their thing. So, I mean, I've had to look at it within myself too. I'm not saying I'm above board with all of it, but I'm willing to be. You know, I think accountability is that big piece of change that we're all striving for. It's not like calling this guy or this person out for resharing your stuff. It's like, no, the way we move forward is like you being accountable for what has transpired. And your lack of accountability shows us that this cycle is going to persist. Exactly. Let's show our accountability. I mean, I would go online, I would do stories and talk like, hey, I did this. And it's only happened a few times. And I know I wasn't above board. I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I was unaware because I grew up with this stuff. So it was pervasive to me. But even people would say, well, that even points to privilege, you know, and I get it. I understand where they're coming from and I want to hear them. I want to listen to them. I want to understand because I have to do that, too. I can't tell you how many people have come to me. And as a gay man, they will ask you the most invasive fucking questions Okay, I kept saying I wasn't going to cuss, but here I am with like, who's the top or bottom? All of that. And I'm like, that's major privilege. Now, I will tell them, I will be like, hey, I have nothing to hide. I'll be transparent. But people don't realize that I don't go around saying, what's your favorite sex position? You know, I don't say who wears the pants in the family. I don't go around asking all of those things. We have to educate people, though. If we're in this position and we want to be seen and heard and we want to be visible, part of our responsibility is education. And most people don't agree because most people are like, I shouldn't have to educate you. And I disagree because I'm a, t- a teacher anyway. <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, listen, if I have a problem with it, I'm the one that has to speak up about it yeah. or else it just keeps going, which is why we need more voices in this space talking about the integrity and the accountability and really make it safe for everyone. And that's my whole point. If my page does not feel safe for people, I don't mind pushing some buttons I don't mind triggering some people, but I don't want to do it for the sake of just doing it. I'm not doing it just for show or any of that. Even in my sessions, I want to be compassionate about how I do it and also laugh about it, maybe, right? Have some fun with it, not make it so serious. Even in my book I'm working on, I'm like, how do I make people laugh? 
about genocide. I don't think I can do it. Or people having their things stolen from them and all of that. I don't think, you know, I don't think we're, we're at that point, but I can at least be poignant about it. Yeah. Loving, compassionate, and open to the story. So yes, memes that took us down a really long path. But to your point, I think they're a way of disseminating information. Yeah. Right now, you know, we can laugh. It can bring some humor and it can be a gateway to diving deeper. Yeah. It can really be an opportunity for that. I think so too. And what I love about memes and why I continue to post them just on Mondays for me, it's just like my favorite 10 of every Monday. So I don't have like a necessarily a meme account because I love my job. But I think there's so much truth to them that is just so concise. And it's like how five words can impact you. The meme that sticks out the most for me this year, I don't know the original author of it, but it was like the Zen Buddha guy under a tree and it said, I became my full authentic self when I realized I was cringe. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No one put a watermark on it. And that goes back to really what we've talked about the whole time is embracing those pieces of ourselves that appear to be unlovable. Yeah. To the point of cringe that we kind of seize up about, that we tense up about. And those are the parts we want to go toward. My silliness and goofiness, because I have a lot of Sag in my chart for my astrology people out there. I have a stellium and it is in the sixth house, by the way. And my Saturn and Virgo is where my Mercury and Sag. I mean, that's cringe all day long. <laughs> I want to like express and be silly and goofy. And then immediately I judge it. Immediately I'm like, oh God, that's uncomfortable. So it's in my astrology. And that also goes back to trauma because I was be silly and goofy and it make people laugh while also like making people uncomfortable. Mm. And so, you know, I've always made people uncomfortable, I think, because I was always different, which is why I got called names in school and things. I'm pretty sure a lot of those people I probably made remarkably uncomfortable with their own stuff. Because when you show up as yourself, people can have to confront themselves, right? They, They have to look at that. So when you're okay being cringy, it sometimes can trigger other people. So I think embracing all of the mess, as well as all the things that we think lack messiness, because life is all the things. When I make art, going back to that, one thing it taught me was I start off perfect. I have the blank canvas. I have the clean brushes. I have all the paints. Well, by the end, my palette is a mess. In process, the painting might look like just a bunch of blobs, right? On the canvas, nothing coherent. Well, even abstract art coming through really with the advent of Impressionism, by the way, for those that don't know, Impressionism started to deconstruct art and everyone in the beginning, you know, Van Gogh, of course, I think sold one painting in his life. Of course, he lived a short life, by the way, for those that don't know. He died early, probably from lead poisoning, from his (laughs) cobalt blue paint, which drove him insane, probably lack of hydration, (laughs) going back to just drink the water and food. People didn't understand it. People, you know, in retrospect, they do, but really there started to be this messiness and this deconstruction. And if you look at these painters, their early work in school, it didn't look that way. They were very much so learning from the classical, which again, we stand on the shoulder of giants, right? They learned from the classical, they stole from the classical techniques, then they deconstructed to make these things, which then became the era of modern art, right? And surrealism grew out of and all of that. So I feel like life is a little bit like that. We start very like, this is the right way to live. And then we start to deconstruct it. And then it starts to get messy. Then we get the paint out and we start to throw it on the canvas and the brushes get messy. And there's a balance to it all because as those that know, when you don't clean your brushes, they dry up and they get 
they get jacked. You got to find the balance between, okay, I'm going to like clean this part up, but I'm going to let that be messy in process. And, you know, it's just all the pieces. But the art taught me that you had to be messy. When I was coating my aluminum plates with the photographic emulsion, I mean, that was super messy. That stuff went everywhere. And you kind of couldn't control it. It really taught me I had to let go of the control. I had to let the emulsion dry the way it was going to dry. And the way the photo came out, which is very painterly usually, which I liked, I didn't know how it was going to come out. I never knew. How did the emulsion set up? Was it thicker? Was it thinner? Oh, I mean, I learned how to regulate it to some degree because you eventually figure that out. But sometimes life, you can't control it. You just have to let it be. And that's part of the human experience here. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate this conversation. <laughs> I really do. And Same. Thank you. I am always surprised when I get to meet someone and get to know them a lot better and a lot deeper. Yeah. And the second I met you, I knew I had to share you with the audience because I was like, people yeah. just need to know like, how brilliant you are, how intelligent you, you are, how <laughs> passionate you are about this work. And you know, I love this phrase that you have on your website. It's like, I'm a spirit guide and a meat suit. And I, thought, <laughs> I actually True. thought that was really well termed because that's actually how I felt about our session together was like, yeah. there was inspiration. There was homework to be done after. There was this incredible yeah. psychic awareness about things that I was currently going through. And yeah. if nothing else, there's so much depth to you that I was just so excited to, to share with the audience. So I appreciate that. And we're going to have links to how to get to your website, how to book in with you. It's Perfect. fun to know too that you deal with relationships because I won't. I'm like, <laughs> um, your relationship session with you. Because yeah, send them my way. <laughs> I will because I think as a medium too, we have to work within our scope of practice and refer, yeah. refer, refer as much as possible. And so absolutely, when people come to me about relationship stuff, I'm going to be like, go see this man. We could, we could talk about it. We can talk about it. Yeah. My thing today was relationship and it was good. Well, I'm a practical human. I really think, you know, relationship has been driven by chemistry and really we've been bumper cars and we can make it conscious now. And there's a lot of research around it now, what you can do to work within the bond. So my work is not just the woo, you know, psychic, intuitive stuff, but also I want to ground it. I and mean, it comes out different every time, right? We want some specificity for that moment. What does this person need now so they can carry it forward? and make the choices they need to make. And really, I say it's all relationship. We live in this world of duality on purpose. It is all here for us to experience relationship. And we tend to put a lot of emphasis on the romance of things. But when we step back, we start to realize that we can become equanimous or, you know, approach everything as with the equanimity, which is what I like to do, which is that I'm going to treat every relationship the same. I say nobody's special. And so I try and treat my romantic partner the same as I would treat the person on the street. Mm. Because I think that's really what will also support us. So uh, my partners never like that. I say they're not special. <laughs> not special. Too much. You're not special. Yeah. I'm like, you're unique. I'm connected to you. I like our intimacy. So in that respect, you know, but I found out that if I treat my romantic partners different than everyone else it kind of i get stuck the attachment yeah. shows up on me so quickly and yeah. i'm like oh can't do that that's going to take me down a rabbit hole and a yeah. dark one at that when <laughs> <laughs> that pattern is done <laughs> yeah all my patterns will show up right which is what our relationships tend to do they're really triggering us 
and also veiling our perceptions because we get kind of stuck in it. So it's good stuff. But yeah, whatever you need. <laughs> Not just you, but anyone that's listening. We can, we can go there. We can go there. But thank you. Thank you for the compliments and thank you for the support. I really appreciate it. Of course. Absolutely. And we'll have links to everything below. Thank you so much for coming, Christian. Thank you. Did you know that Spirit School is not just a podcast? It's an actual school. If you go to myspiritschool.com, you can invest in self-study courses, live programs, and of course, the Spirit School Collective, my baby, my monthly membership community. All Spirit School offerings are intended to get you feeling clear, confident, and connected to your spiritual path, your development journey, and of course, connected to other spiritual curious souls who are having similar experiences to you. I hope to see you in Spirit School.